Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Father, thank you for your word given to us. We ask that by your spirit who inspired scripture, that same spirit may inspire preacher and hearers alike and draw us all closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, just before I uh, take you to Hebrews 11, I think it's appropriate if I say just one word of uh, uh, following on Kate Selby's last Sunday. She was reminding me that uh, uh, on the first Sunday, she remembers I was preaching then. I was preaching with a student then, and she came to when she was a student, and I was, she even remembers the passage I was preaching on. I'm very impressed about all that. And so when she first started here, I was preaching, and I'm still preaching. Well, I have stopped in between a bit, but it's, uh, it's a great uh, pleasure to be here tonight and say thanks to Kate for all that she's done over all these years. It's my joy to uh, appoint her as, uh, uh, on the staff, and therefore, Kate, you're the, la- you're the last link on the staff with my days here. Uh, wish, wish, wish her well and God's rich blessing. Well, now, we're ending this series on running the race, and I've got the task of the race of the people, uh, which is these two, three verses in Hebrews 11, 29 to 31, and we read a bit of the Old Testament preparation uh, for this, these passages, this passage. Um, most of us during this summer have been uh, good armchair sportsmen. I've been a marvellous armchair sportsman. I've been willing more Farrow to run those last few yards and make it. I've been willing our own Jessica Ennis I've, I've got rather concerned. I discovered only the other day, apparently, she's a Unitedite. I, th- this has rather gone off, Jessica Ennis. I was a great lover of Jessica Ennis till then, but I must try and forget. Nobody is perfect. But I can remember willing uh, Jessica Ennis from the armchair uh, and hoping she'd win and did she so well. Uh, I've transferred now to a less comfortable chair at Hillsborough where I'm still willing my favourite team on and so far successfully. As a young man, uh, I gathered as a teenager with a group of other teenage louts to watch our Lancashire League team, which uh, I was a supporter of. Called Lancashire League team in Blackman was called rather poshly East Lancashire because it was founded by the East Lancashire Regiment. And I can remember I and a few other boys were rather barracking some batsmen who was batting far too slowly. And... Uh, he did very courageously. He marched to the edge of the, of the pitch. He offered the bat to me and said, you come and have a go. It was a perfect thing to do because I was discomforted and humiliated and I never bowed again, at least not for a few weeks. Uh, because, uh, but I, you see, one thing, isn't it? Great thing to barrack, great thing to cheer, but there are no armchair sportsmen in Hebrews 11. We're all involved in it. And this series we've been looking at leads into Hebrews 12, verse 1, which reminds us that we are all uh, surrounded by these witnesses and we are to run our own race with perseverance, the race set before us. So we're not armchair, we're on the job, we're being called to run. Now, in Hebrews 12, who is watching whom? You work that one out. Who is watching whom? Is it the witnesses somewhere in glory watching us, seeing how we're getting on? Is it ourselves watching the way they've gone on and trying to follow? I think I take the lesson, the second one, really. But we are looking to them as an inspiration. We spent this whole series looking back. And now we've reached the people, the 
popular, the crowd, in two installments, the crowd who went through the Red Sea and the crowd who marched around Jericho, uh, the people. I, some time ago, do you remember when everybody was going on the London Marathon? I wanted to have a T-shirt which I would wear which said, I have never run in the London Marathon. There weren't many of us left. It was such a lot of people running in the marathon. The ones who started were, up on, were at the winning stop before they, you know, they got there before they started. I mean, there were so many people running. How on earth do you run in a marathon like that? Well, it's a challenge to us, the people of God, to run with patience the race set before us. But... People can only run as they're led. It's very interesting. Moses was our theme this morning, and we're now reminded in the book of Hebrews that Hebrew, he, Moses led the people way back in chapter 3. He led the people of God. They followed and he led. Joshua led the people of God. Do pray, pray for inspired leadership in the church as a whole. Thank God for leaders we have in this church. Thank God for leaders around the country, but we do desperately need role models who will lead us aright. And uh, we are looking at the two events, uh, the Exodus and Jericho, and in between those events there were 40 years when nothing happened, when they wandered round and round and round. And the whole point of the letter to the Hebrews, it's writing to Hebrew Christians to encourage them not to keep going round and round, not to go back into their old ways. These were Jewish Christians. If you were a Jew practicing a Jewish faith in the time when this letter was written by the Roman authorities, you were okay. What they called the religio licita, that is, you, it was an allowed religion. If you were a Christian, it was a religio non licita, a, a forbidden religion. So if, if you were a Jew, and a Christian, terribly tempting to stress your Jewishness, you were okay. Stress your Christianity, and you are in trouble. And the challenge of the whole letter is, please don't go back. In Hebrews 3, there's a long section all about, uh, to, uh, today if you'll hear his voice, harden not your heart, Psalm 95, which we used to sing every Sunday morning in the old prayer book days, the Vanity. And the danger is that these people were wandering around and they were forgetting where they were meant to go. And so the challenge of the verses to us, to you, uh, nowadays I don't know most of the congregation, some, quite a few of I do know, so I don't know where you are spiritually, but I do know that we are in danger, all of us, from time to time of wandering on, of getting nowhere. And the challenge of these verses is a challenge of Faith or folly? They're very close to each other, of faith and folly. And it's interesting that this story of the Exodus is used in other parts of the Old Testament to challenge the people of God. When they were in exile, the day will come, says Isaiah and Jeremiah, when they're no more saying, how wonderful that God brought you out of Egypt, but how wonderful if God brought you out of exile. And in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 10... Paul talks about being baptized to Moses in the Red Sea. It was a strange phrase, that. The only people who got baptized in the Red Sea were the Egyptian army, and they went through total immersion with, with a vengeance. Uh, but being baptized in the Red Sea was more a commitment. You are committed to the God of the Red Sea, just as Moses uh, 
was committed, was baptized, well, the people of Israel were baptized to Moses in the Red Sea. And when you get the story of Jericho, there's a wonderful illustration in the New Testament where in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, look, we don't fight with the weapons of the world, but we have weapons that are mighty through God to the pulling down of the strongholds of Satan. Now, do you see how faith is so near to folly? The faith that is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen? Just ponder. You walk round Jericho 13 times, six times for six de- on six days, and then seven times on the last. Imagine the taunts from the battlements of Jericho. What a waste of time, you foolish people. And they did it with the belief that ultimately the walls of Jericho would fall down. That is amazing. Faith and folly were very close to each other. And when Moses bid uh, the Jews, the, the children of Israel, at the, at the Red Sea, when he bid them stand still and see God's deliverance, that was a crucial moment. What with the, the Egyptian army behind you, with the Red Sea in front of you, with the desert on one side, the mountains on the other, well, stand still was the obvious thing to do. Where, where do you turn? But see the deliverance of God. Faith and folly were very close together. We rejoice here at Fullwood to have close links with the Oaks. I'm glad there's an Oaks person on the front row because it gives me a, a visual aid, you see. The, the Oaks Conference Centre, uh, where we have many links. If you've never been there, you ought to go. Make sure you have a trip round. And I can remember going round with Dan and Billy when the place there was uh, a, a wreck of a place. And Dan and Billy saw the potential and my wife and I walked round with them, and I can remember Dan saying to me, well, what do you think? And I remember saying quite clearly, it will either be the greatest act of faith or the greatest act of folly in modern church history. Go for it. Easy enough for me to say that, wasn't it? Go for it. They went for it, and the evidence today is obvious. If I may, because I've got a little time on my hands tonight, we're running to a good time. If I may, I have long wanted to get the BBC to do a documentary on the Oaks, because you may not know. If anybody got people influenced with high power with the BBC, do let me know. Because do you know that the where the Oaks is now was the home of the Bagshaws, and the Bagshaw family were related to a very famous William Bagshaw the Apostle of the Peak. You can find a book about him. William Bagshaw, the Apostle of the Peak, was a man who was turfed out of the Church of England in the 17th century. He preached from pillar to post. He was constantly persecuted. He lived in Bradwell, and he did a remarkable work, Glossop and all that way around. Isn't it a marvellous thought? I think it is. That now, in the 21st century, the, the ancestral home of the Bagshaws is being used to lead in young lives to Christ and to send them out in Christian service to the ends of the earth, William Bagshaw must be rejoicing at the tremendous heritage. But you see, for Bagshaw, he risked everything. He stopped having a cosy life. He was prepared to preach even if he got in trouble with the authorities. And Dan and Billy stepped out in great faith. And we thank God them. Faith and folly can go close together. But faith and works very much go close together because we end our passage by looking at Rahab. And Rahab, it was said of her that uh, she 
when they got to Jericho, she said to the people, I, the spies, I believe God has given it into your hand. I believe your God is the real God. But she proved she believed it by risking her very life by harboring the spies in her home. It's all right to say you believe. Live it out. I do hope this series, it comes to an end, will challenge some of us to say, are we living by this kind of faith? Is this really true of us in the world in which we live? Well, let me have two simple points for you tonight. Faith in essence, faith in action. What is faith in essence? We're going to flesh out those words at the beginning of Hebrews 11. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That is, the invisible becomes visible, the future becomes present. That's faith. Two thoughts about faith, in essence. One, it's trusting God's word. So here's Moses, stands in front of the Red Sea, and says to the people of Israel, whom he's just let out of Egypt, stand still and see the deliverance God will work for you. Wait. Trust God's word against all the evidence. They did. And when Joshua stands over against Jericho, Joshua hears in Joshua chapter 6 verse 2, God says to, through his angel, says to Joshua, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. But wait a minute. Jericho was there. The battlements were there. The armed people were there. I have given it into your hands. March round 13 times and you'll find it. But it's already yours. Faith believes against the odds. One occasion they're asked to wait. Just stand still. The other occasion they're asked to go on doing the kind of thing that seems rather pointless sometimes. But wait. Trusting God's word. Now, I find it fascinating when I study Scripture. This idea of faith and folly in the New Testament is all to do with the message of the cross. And when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 to the church at Corinth, he reminds them that the message of Christ crucified is folly to the world but wisdom to the people of God. It's weakness to the world, it's strength to the people of God. And Paul can write that to Corinth because he remembers that when he went into Corinth in Acts chapter 18, when he went into Corinth, Acts 18 verse 10, God said to him in a very special vision, fear not, I have much people in this city. I have many people in this city. At which time there wasn't. It was God's language of faith and then the promise, I am with you. So Paul could remember, he'd gone into a highly immoral city and he yet believed that God would transform it. In a minute we'll translate into our world of today because it, we need to do it with confidence. But trusting God's word is what faith is in essence. And secondly, awaiting God's action. Trust and obey, an old hymn we used to sing. And if we do trust, then it will call for action and it takes courage to take God at his word. I uh, went to a grammar school in Lancashire, in Blackburn, my hometown, 
and we had an old boy of our school called Professor Garstang. Now, Professor Garstang once came to give a, a lecture on all about the walls of Jericho falling. If you read your commentaries, you discover that Garstang was an archaeologist and he, he believed that when he studied Jericho, that the evidence was that Jericho's walls had fallen down through some cataclysmic thing. And he came. I remember I had to give a vote of thanks because I was senior prefect. It was my job to give him a vote of thanks. I had just become a Christian. I was very excited about the fact that it seemed to prove the Bible. Now, I'm a very honest man, I think. I have to tell you that modern scholars aren't really sure that the walls that Garstang saw were the actual walls of Jericho at the time of Joshua. Indeed, the time scale seems wrong, and therefore, perhaps with best in the world, Garstang was saying too much. He'd added two and two together and got five, and perhaps we can't anymore be sure of that. And I can read the book Bible as history, and it can tell you evidence of how the Red Sea might have parted, some of the kind of strange phenomena that may have happened. Now, I'm not destroying your faith, I'm building it up. What I'm saying to you is I cannot be sure that we've any evidence how the walls of Jericho fell. I am not sure there is any evidence that any other Red Sea equivalent has happened. But you see... We have a God who's a God of the impossible. We have a God who is the God of miracles. What really happened, they were to await God's action. How the Red Sea parted, how the walls of Jericho fell, whether you can find some scientific explanation in senses, out of the question. What really matters is it was an act of God. You'll remember that um, I've often commented on this pulpit. I remember this church was insured against an act of God. It always worried me that our church should be insured against an act of God. One hope the acts of God every week and the church will be excitingly moved by acts of God. It's a kind of technical term for uh, lawyers. But an act of God is what this was. And the tremendous challenge to us as, as believers is that God is still a God who acts But he acts in two ways. He acts in destruction and he acts in deliverance. Didn't you find that passage being read in Joshua 6 not easy? Destruction, death. And uh, the Egyptian army that went into the sea, they were all destroyed. And if you read the story in Exodus chapter 14, Moses stretched forth his hand to part the waters... And he stretched forth his hand for the waters to come back and destroy the Egyptian army. Don't duck it. Don't take half the Bible as true. Destruction and deliverance are two sides of the same coin. And the acts of God are both. Years and years ago, there was a a distinguished gentleman in this congregation who uh, had his funeral service, and he insisted that I read Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8, and he'd actually put down in his will, uh, please remember, go up to number 8. You're all intrigued, I know. You're all waiting with great expectation. For you see, Revelation 21, 1 to 7 is the set passage for a funeral service. And it ends, it's a glorious promise of a new heaven and a new earth. But it ends, oh yes, before verse 8. For verse 8 talks about the second death. It talks about destruction. It talks about hell. 
This, this man wanted that to be read, not because there was any doubt about his destiny. He was a, a great Christian gentleman. But he wanted me to take the opportunity to remind people at his funeral that there were two destinations. There is destruction and there is deliverance. And they're both acts of God. And faith, in essence, awaits God's action as well as trusts God's word. Then what about faith in action? Let's just look at it in destruction and in deliverance. The faith, not only that that they get through the Red Sea, but the Egyptian army would be destroyed. This is where I want to bring it, if I may, up to date. What are the forces that are are chasing us? What are the forces that are attacking the church in our day? Aggressive secularism. The assumption almost that we're out of business. You see now just one little item. Now that the Olympic Games are over, there's a great push to make Sunday like every other day. We shall lose all any special thing about Sunday. Yet one more way in which our nation assumes we really aren't important. Aggressive secularism. There is militant Islam. Not Islam. We should have a deep concern and love for our Muslim friends. But militant Islam, which is determined to push us out. Last Sunday morning, I was preaching in Darnall. It's a joy to be able to encourage some of these people. Thirteen people in the church in Darnall. Uh, uh, virtually all, not only two men possibly. Uh, Thirteen people. And on my way, I passed the Muslims gathering. It's the end of Ramadan. And hundreds and hundreds of Muslim in their robes, men, men, gathering. Easy to say, has the church died? Is it relevant in an area where Islam is so dominant? And the challenge to Christians is that we have to be able to present a message that makes our Muslim friends realize we're still in business, lovingly but firmly and courageously. But even more, the thing that might be like the Egyptian army to destroy us is a religion that has lost its way, a liberal religion that has almost given up on believing as God is a God of, of miracles. I studied history in my student days, so I always go back to the wonderful truth that when John Wesley, by the grace of God, was let loose in our nation, the church was at an even lower ebb than it is today. And yet there came a great revival and there came a a desire to take the gospel out all over the world. When you watched the Olympic Games, and did you see the the saga at the beginning? I I didn't fully understand all that marvellous presentation at the beginning. But one thing I did notice, when they were portraying the greatness of Team GB, Country GB, did you hear any? Reference to the Christian faith at all? A lady sang two verses of Abide With Me. No suggestion that one of the greatest things we've ever done is to send the gospel to the ends of the earth. And millions of people have come to faith because British people sacrificed and went abroad. Was that there? No. But you and I need to remember that uh, in the days of John Wesley, when things were a low ebb, revival came... 
and we can therefore expect, without allegorizing the Egyptian army, we can expect the attack and know that God will have the last word. And the tragedy for me is that church, and I see it too often today, is busy assuming things will keep on going from bad to worse. Keep on church planting. Keep on going with vision because we're bucking the trend. Desperately important because we must not assume that damage limitation is all we can do. Faith in action, destruction, and in, secondly, in deliverance. At the Red Sea, the people of God came through unscathed. And they took with them two stones to remind them of this. And we have sacraments to remind us of what God has done, how often we forget. And when they marched around the walls of Jericho, they believed God's word and the walls fell down and in they were able to go. And Paul would say that the weapons we have are mighty through God, the pulling down of strongholds of Satan, so we don't fight with human weapons. We have different weapons. And again, how important to remember it. That is, the weapons we fight with are spiritual weapons. We don't try to win by being better organized, better financed, better PR and all that. We actually believe that we have in the power of prayer. On Wednesday evening, you've been invited. And I thank God the way this prayer meeting has kept going right through these years here. Invited to join us to pray, believing that that's what God uses to change things. He certainly uses it to change things here. And he wants to do it again. These are the weapons that are mighty through God. And the Bible promises that if only we believe, the gates of hell will not prevail. As a lad, when we used to sing those hymns like Onward Christian Soldiers, gates of hell shall never against this church prevail. I had a vision of the, of the enemy attacking the church and we were holding on. That's all I could believe as I belonged to a little church and thank God for it, but it was hard to believe that we're storming the gates of hell. But the challenge is that if we only believed, then we would see the gates of hell not prevailing. And the, the lovely bit at the end of that story is that Rahab came out. She came out and she presents a remarkable link with the New Testament. In the genealogy of Jesus, there are only four women's names mentioned, and one of them is Rahab. She becomes the prostitute who had faith to believe and ready to act in her belief. She becomes one in the line to Jesus. And of Jesus says about him, He shall, you'll call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people, deliver his people from their sins. I always think when you get to this stage in the year, it's next stop to Christmas, isn't it? Next week, all the young people are back telling us all about their wonderful time. It's, it's amazing to think you're so many here with 170 away at a house party. That's quite amazing, isn't it? Anyway, when the 170 come back from the house party next Sunday night, they'll be telling us of what God has done. And after that, we shall all be getting ready for Christmas. And this, this is how the church year moves on. Carol practice is being announced. And the story of Rahab is a reminder that God is sovereign over the events that lead on to the coming of Christ. Faith and folly. And the world is transformed because one woman, against all the odds, stuck her neck out. The world been transformed because another woman of much better background, like Mary, believed and became the mother of Jesus, who, in a remarkable way, 
dealt with our sin. And then comes that other moment of faith and folly with which I close. Do you remember that moment at the end of the Gospels, Matthew? When Jesus gathered 11 disciples together in Matthew 28, verse 16, and Jesus said to those 11 disciples who hadn't done very well while he was alive, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, and lo, I am with you always. Mad. Eleven men make disciples of all nations. Well, we are a tiny part of the fulfillment of that promise. And at that moment, Jesus gives what it seems an utterly foolish challenge. But if only you go out with faith, God does the impossible. We sometimes sing the hymn, Facing a Task Unfinished. And it has this line, From cowardice defend us, from lethargy awake. Forth on thine errands send us to labor for thy sake. Which is your greater danger? Cowardice? Lethargy? Which one? We're both of us, we're both affect all of us from time to time. And if we're going to see God work in, uh, in response to our faith, it'll call for courage, it'll call for hard work, it'll call for sacrifice. As the, the, the more long-standing members of this church will remember, I actually came to faith through the story of that great gentleman, C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd, who played cricket for England. For those who like the statistics, he was at the non-receiving end when England first lost the Ashes. There you are. There you are. When, when, when Andrew's predecessors destroyed us, and uh, Mr. Stodd, Mr. Stodd was at the, the non-receiving end. The, the, the batsman who, who faced the last ball in the first test when we lost the Ashes was a, a Yorkshireman called Pete, a left-arm bowler. And when he slogged at the ball and lost it, and they lost the Ashes, they, they told him off. And he, his answer was, "I couldn't trust Mr. Stodd." I was like that promise. I couldn't trust Mr. Studd. But Mr. Studd was a great missionary, became a great missionary. And his words were, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And if that word did nothing else, it changed my life. I don't know how many years ago now, 60 odd years ago. And it's, it's that spirit that I think is a challenge all. The last time I mentioned this in this pulpit, uh, I remember mentioning that C.T. Studd wrote a book called The Chocolate Soldier. And having mentioned this, Paul Williams then very kindly bought me a copy and sent me one. Uh, Paul, if you're here, I, I, I've lost it. No, I've given it away, so another copy would be much appreciated. The Chocolate Soldier. And The Chocolate Soldier, C.T. Studd wrote, because he said there are so many Christians who talk loud, who sing songs of great enthusiasm but they're just chocolate soldiers when the first heat of battle comes they melt away please don't be like that don't melt away and the challenge that comes to us I think is that uh, we are facing a, a, a tremendous challenge in our world let's be men and women of faith who will stand up and be counted whatever the cost so that uh, 
at the end the Lord will say well done good and faithful servant and that's more important than any gold medal so God give us grace to run the race with faith with courage and with love let me pray Father, we do thank you for those who have run the race before us, for those whose lives have been an inspiration in Scripture and in church history and in our lives. Help us to run with perseverance. Help us to face the challenge when faith seems foolish, but to dare to stand up and be counted. And we pray that in your mercy you will so work through your people including us in this our day, that we may yet see the gates of hell shivering at the sound of people believing, praying, and serving as we give ourselves to afresh. In Jesus' name.